Hey everyone, it's Pacific, here with just a few quick announcements. First, this episode's written by a new writer, John Sachs. Uh, I just want to give him a very warm welcome to the show. He's an excellent writer, and you're going to see a lot more of his works in the near future. Second, a reminder... At the end of October, we are closing up shop for a few months. Uh, we'll work on season two. So we will be off for most of November and December, uh, maybe save for a special holiday episode or two. So we'll be off for a bit, but you should expect us back in January. And last but certainly not least, if you like the show and you like what we do, consider leaving a review. Reviews are one of the best ways to get our shows into the ears of new listeners, and it helps us know what you like and what you don't. Especially with Season 2 coming around the corner, if you have ideas for new stories, suggestions for show formats, or anything else like that, let us know. We'd love to hear your feedback. And now, without further ado, this week's episode. In the summer of 2017, Netflix released a film called Veronica. Directed by Paco Plaza, it stars Sandra Escasina, alongside Claudia Placer, Bruna Gonzalez, Ivan Chavero, and Anna Torrent, written by Paco Plaza and Fernando Navarro. This foreign film quickly becomes a sensation across the streaming platform as a scary film that people would dare their friends to watch. It evoked memories of The Exorcist, a film that felt so real it would unnerve the viewers to the point that they felt compelled to shut it off. Why did it feel so real? Well, that's because the film was based on the real story of a woman named Estefania Gutierrez Lazaro. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. What happened to Estefania Gutierrez Lizarro is a matter of much speculation. Her family and the local police believe this teenage girl's passing is one of the few Ouija board horror stories where someone actually managed to conjure something from the other side. She was a 15-year-old girl from Vallecas, a suburb in southern Madrid. Estefania was allegedly into the occult, although, according to her parents, no more than any regular high school teenager. They believed she was just playing around with spooky stuff and didn't think something like a Ouija board could cause the damage it later seemed to. In 1990, Estefania brought a Ouija board to school, changing the course of her life forever. Estefania's parents claimed the seance occurred at their daughter's high school. She allegedly wanted to reach her friend's ex-boyfriend, who had passed away after being involved in a motorcycle accident. Friends watched the process, but then a nun stopped the seance. The nun damaged the board, which some speculate caused a paranormal disruption. One of the stranger parts of Estefania's story is the mention of an unexplainable white smoke that allegedly appeared after her seance. Witnesses claimed that after the nun broke the Ouija board, some kind of smoke spewed from the shards, and Estefania allegedly inhaled the white smoke through her mouth and nose before she fell into a seizure. Some believe that the smoke was representative of a demon, and Estefania unwillingly took the spirit inside of her, subsequently causing a form of possession. The nun was too late, however, to stop the possession that allegedly occurred right after. Estefania's parents claimed that after she performed the seance, she began to hallucinate. According to the family, Estefania said that she saw dark figures walking through the house. She described the mysterious beings as evil, maintaining that they plagued her all night. Then the teen began to have seizures. The seizures became full-on manic fits where she would bark at her siblings, but no one knew what to do. 
Her parents took her to multiple doctors and specialists, but no one could figure out what was wrong with her. She reportedly didn't have a mental problem, but it was obvious to professionals that Estefania wasn't well. The story of Estefania's haunting was nothing like what happened in Veronica. While the police arrived after a crazed 911 call in the film, it took over a year before the actual police became involved in the real case. Estefania's family didn't reach out until after the girl's passing in 1991. When the family brought the police to the apartment in Vallecas, the authorities discovered a series of spooky happenings. When the police investigated, they claimed they heard a loud banging noise coming from an unoccupied area in the home. After that, they reported how a perfectly closed armoire became open in a sudden and totally unnatural way. In the film Veronica, the girl passes away under extreme circumstances in three days. But Estefania's passing took over six months. After more than half a year of suffering from seizures and hallucinations, Estefania's life ended in August of 1991. Reportedly, she passed while at the hospital and not at home like the fictional character Veronica. Estefania's parents don't know what happened to her, but they believe that her death had to do with the supernatural. They've never said that they explicitly believe a demon was released, but they think her passing was caused by something evil. According to Paco Plaza, the director of Veronica, he made this movie because it's a story that he's heard time and time again. Plaza admits that he made some changes to the story, but he says that the tale is such a popular Spanish myth that everyone who tells it adds their own spin. In a Q&A at the Toronto International Film Festival, he said, In Spain, it's very popular, because it is, as we say in the film, the only time a police officer has said he has witnessed something paranormal, and it's written in a report with an official police stamp. But I think when we tell something, it becomes a story, even if it's in the news. You only have to read the different newspapers to know how different reality is, depending on who's telling it. With this in mind, Plaza didn't strive to replicate Estefania's tale or even present her story in a biographical sense. He wanted to express his own artistic vision of the Spanish lure. Sadly, this was not the end of this family's nightmare. Up next, listen to what the Lazaro family experienced after their daughter had passed away. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. After Estefania's passings, the hauntings continued to torment her family for over a year. The Gutierrez parents claimed that after their daughter died, they didn't go a day without dark, ominous figures stomping through their home and slamming doors. They described how their appliances turned on and off without warning, and how inanimate objects would leap from shelves and move without interference. The hauntings only escalated from there. The mother said she heard the screaming voice of Estefania calling her from other rooms in the house, laughter of an old man crossing the walls, glass breaking without explanation, doors opening and closing on their own, objects moving. One night, the mother felt someone touching her hands and feet while she slept. Another night, the little daughters woke up terrified, with their wrists being slammed violently against the wall. Members of the Gutierrez family also maintained how they could hear someone whispering to them in the middle of the night, and at times, hear Estefania shrieking. Mrs. Gutierrez claimed that one of the shadow people attacked her in her sleep. I felt pressure on top of me, but there was no one around. I said, there's someone here. I then felt a pair of hands grab my feet and then grab my hand, which were uncovered by the blanket. 
While these instances of paranormal phenomena haven't been confirmed, the family continued to experience unexplainable occurrences within their Vallecas home. On November 1st, 1993, two years after Estefania's death, her photo hanging in the living room caught fire, and the part that burned was just the one depicting her face, while neither the frame nor the nearby objects showed any damage. They maintained that it fell off an end table and simply began to smolder. When Estefania's picture ignited, Mr. and Mrs. Gutierrez knew that they needed to contact the authorities. On November 27, 1992, the Gutierrez family decided to call the police. Inspector Jose Negri and his team arrived on site in the night, finding the parents and children outside the house, in the rain, terrified. While a couple of agents stayed with the parents and listened to the whole story from their mouths, Inspector Negri and the other two agents entered the apartment. The report written by the inspector after the inspection has become a cult object among occultists. When police investigated the Gutierrez household, they reportedly witnessed an array of paranormal activity. They saw a mysterious substance stuck to the furniture that appeared to be the brownish-red color of blood. While they were conducting an investigation, the officers allegedly saw the stains begin to spread. According to paranormal analysts, this anecdote relates an interaction with some kind of poltergeist. In the police report, the scene was detailed as a situation of mystery and rarity. That report describes the door of a wardrobe that opens violently, despite being locked a few seconds before, almost hitting the face of the agents in the process. It also talks about the loud noises coming from the balcony that was empty. A strange brown slime that had formed on a bedside table. A crucifix, originally which was hung on the wall, was then found on the ground, torn from the wood on which it was mounted. Scratches of three claws were clearly visible on the wall where it was hung, as if they ripped it from the wall. The agents also inspected the bathroom, which was, according to the family, the most haunted place in the house. The agents felt a sudden drop in temperature unlike any they had ever experienced before in their lives. The agents left the apartment in a hurry, aware that they could not do anything. Shortly after, the Gutierrez family sold their home and moved away, which seemingly stopped all paranormal events from ever occurring again. Sometime later, Estefania's mother was subjected to a psychological examination, which found signs of emotional instability, anxiety, and need for attention, suggesting that in some way she may have accentuated the magnitude of the events that she witnessed. However, the events described by the police reports were unrelated to the stories told by the mother, and should be interpreted as objective facts that actually happened. The Vallecas case is named after the Madrid neighborhood where, in an apartment in Calle Luis Marinate, a repeated sequence of paranormal phenomena took place, requiring even police intervention. It is one of the most famous cases among lovers of occult cases in Spain, and it has gone down in history for being the first case of paranormal phenomena to be documented in an official police report. In 1886, the fledgling Associated Press reported a new phenomenon taking over the spiritualists' camps in Ohio, the talking board. It was, for all intents and purposes, a Ouija board with letters, numbers, and a planchette-like device to point to them. The article went far and wide, but it was Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland, who acted on it. In 1890, he pulled together a group of four other investors, including Elijah Bond, a local attorney, and Colonel Washington Bowie, a surveyor to start the Kennedy Novelty Company, to exclusively make and market these new talking boards. None of the men were spiritualists, really, but they were all keen businessmen, and they'd identified a niche. But they didn't have the Ouija board yet. The Kennard talking board lacked a name. 
Contrary to popular belief, Ouija is not a combination of the French for yes, we, oui, and the German, ja. It was Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, who was, Bond said, a strong medium, who supplied the now instantly recognizable handle. Sitting around the table, they asked the board what they should call it. The name Ouija came through. And, when they asked what that meant, the board replied, good luck. Eerie and cryptic. But for the fact that Peters acknowledged that she was wearing a locket bearing the picture of a woman, the name Ouija above her head. That's the story that emerged from the Ouija founder's letters. It's very possible that the woman in the locket was famous author and popular women's rights activist Suida, who Peters admired, and that Ouija was just a misreading of that. According to Murch's interviews with the descendants of the Ouija founders and the original Ouija patent file itself, which he's seen, the story of the board's patent request was true. Knowing that if they couldn't prove that the board worked, they wouldn't get their patent, Bond brought the indispensable Peters to the patent office in Washington with him when he filed his application. There, the chief patent officer demanded a demonstration. If the board could accurately spell out his name, which was supposed to be unknown to Bond and Peters, he'd allow the patent application to proceed. They all sat down, communed with the spirits, and the planchette faithfully spelled out the patent officer's name. Whether or not it was mystical spirits or the fact that Bond, as a patent attorney, may have just known the man's name, well, that's unclear, Murch says. But on February 10th, 1891, a white-faced, invisibly shaken patent officer awarded Bond a patent for his new toy or game. The first patent offers no explanation as to how the device works, just asserts that it does. That ambiguity and mystery was part of a more or less conscious marketing effort. The less the Kennard Company said about how the board worked, the more mysterious it seemed, and the more people wanted to buy it. Ultimately, it was a moneymaker. They didn't care why people thought it worked. And it was a moneymaker. By 1892, the Kennard Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, and one in London. By 1893, Kennard and Bond were out, owing to some internal pressures and the old saying about money changing everything. By this time, William Fold, who'd gotten in on the ground floor of the fledgling company as an employee and stockholder, was running the company. Notably, Fold is not and never claimed to be the inventor of the board, though even his obituary in the New York Times declared him to be. Also notably, Fold died in 1927, after a freak fall from the roof of his new factory, a factory he said the Ouija board had told him to build. In 1898, with the blessings of Colonel Bowie, the majority shareholder and one of the two remaining original investors, he licensed the exclusive rights to make the board. What followed were boom years for Fold and frustration for some of the men who'd been on the Ouija board from the beginning. Public squabbling over who'd really invented it played out in the pages of the Baltimore Sun, while their rival boards launched and failed. In 1919, Bowie sold the remaining business interest in Ouija to Fold, his protege, for one dollar. The board's instant and now, more than 120 years later, prolonged success showed that it had tapped into a weird place in American culture. It was marketed as both mysterical oracle and as family entertainment, fun with an element of otherworldly excitement. This meant that it wasn't only spiritualists who bought the board. In fact, the people who disliked the Ouija board the most tended to be spirit mediums, as they had just found their job as spiritual middleman cut out. The Ouija board appealed to people from across a wide spectrum of ages, professions, and education, because the Ouija board offered a fun way for people to believe in something. People want to believe. The need to believe that something else is out there is powerful. Ouija boards allow people to express their belief. 
It's quite logical then that the board would find its greatest popularity in uncertain times when people hold fast to belief and look for answers from just about anywhere, especially cheap, do-it-yourself oracles. The 1910s and 20s with the devastations of World War I and the manic years of the Jazz Age and Prohibition witnessed a surge in Ouija popularity. It was so normal that in May of 1920, Norman Rockwell, illustrator of blissful 20th century domesticity, depicted a man and a woman, Ouija board on their knees, communing with the beyond on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. During the Great Depression, the Fold Company opened new factories to meet demands for the boards. Over five months in 1944, a single New York department store sold 50,000 of them. In 1967, the year after Parker Brothers bought the game from the Fold Company, two million boards were sold, outselling Monopoly. Strange Ouija tales also made frequent titillating appearances in American newspapers. In 1920, National Wire Services reported that would-be crime solvers were turning to their Ouija boards for clues in the mysterious murder of a New York City gambler, Joseph Burton Elwell, much to the frustration of the police. In 1921, the New York Times reported that a Chicago woman being sent to a psychiatric hospital tried to explain to doctors that she wasn't suffering from mania, but the Ouija spirits had told her to leave her mother's dead body in the living room for 15 days before burying her in the backyard. In 1930, newspaper readers thrilled to accounts of two women in Buffalo, New York, who'd murdered another woman, supposedly on the encouragement of Ouija board messages. In 1941, a 23-year-old gas station attendant from New Jersey told the New York Times that he joined the army because the Ouija board told him to. In 1958, a Connecticut court decided not to honor the Ouija board will of Mrs. Helen Dow Peck, who left only $1,000 to two former servants and an insane $152,000 to Mr. John Gale Forbes, a lucky but bodiless spirit who'd contacted her via the Ouija board. Ouija boards even offered literary inspiration. In 1916, Mrs. Pearl Curran made headlines when she began writing poems and stories that she claimed were dictated, via Ouija board, by the spirit of a 17th century Englishwoman called Patience Worth. The following year, Curran's friend, Emily Grant Hutchings, claimed that her book, Japaran, was communicated via Ouija board by the late Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. Curran earned significant success, Hutchings less, but neither of them achieved the heights that the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet James Merrill did. In 1982, his epic Ouija-inspired and dictated poem, The Changing Light at Sandover, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Merrill, for his part, publicly implied that the Ouija board acted more as a magnifier for his own poetic thoughts, rather than as a hotline to the spirits. In 1979, he wrote Mirabelle, Book of Number, another Ouija creation. He told the New York Review of Books, if the spirits aren't external, how astonishing the mediums become. Ouija existed on the periphery of American culture, perennially popular, mysterious, interesting, and usually, barring a few cases of supposed Ouija-inspired murders, non-threatening. That is, until 1973. In that year, the exorcist scared the pants off people in theaters with all that pea soup and head spinning and supposedly based on a true story business, and the implication that 12-year-old Regan was possessed by a demon after playing with a Ouija board by herself changed how people saw the board. It's kind of like Psycho, no one was afraid of showers until that scene, it's a clear line, says Merch, explaining that before The Exorcist, film and TV depictions of the Ouija board were usually jokey, hokey, and silly. I Love Lucy, for example, featured a 1951 episode in which Lucy and Ethel host a seance using the Ouija board. But for at least 10 years afterwards, it's no joke. The Exorcist actually changed the fabric of pop culture. 
the facts behind estefania gutierrez the czaro's death remain shrouded in mystery the effects of her death remain a terrible tale for her family and those that loved her while there is no proof that the ouija board is actually a portal to speak with the dead there's only one question to ask yourself next time someone suggests that you use one who is moving the board Tonight's episode was written by John Sachs. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a Bloody FM show. For more information, visit bloody.fm. <laughs>